Well, good morning, everybody. This morning we have two Bible readings, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. And the Old Testament reading, first of all, is from Psalm 139. So if you could uh, join me in reading Psalm 139, and uh, we read the whole chapter. So Psalm 139, beginning at verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you and I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! I speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And the sermon text from this passage are the verses 21 and 22. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And now we turn to the New Testament, to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and it's the last paragraph, the verses 43 to 48. So Matthew chapter 5, and beginning at verse 43 of Jesus Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, 
and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then the text from this section, the first two verses there, uh, 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, I wonder if you've noticed, but doesn't there seem to be a lot of hatred in the world today? So much so that it has even affected our language. In recent years, we've coined new terms such as hate speech and hate mail. And we even have organisations known as hate groups. They seem to exist for the sole purpose of hating other people, whether they be blacks or illegal immigrants or those with opposite political sympathies. And sometimes even Christians have been accused of hate crimes. Hate crimes against Muslims, against gays, against abortionists. Now, the question before us this morning is not whether such accusations are justified or not, but whether we as Christians are allowed to hate at all. Should feelings of hostility ever well up inside us? Can we ever be filled with hatred for another human being? Are such feelings ever justified? Well, one of the most beautiful Psalms in the Bible the one we have just read, Psalm 139, would answer yes. Listen again to those pointed words of David. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe them that rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. But over against these words of David, we have the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So here we have our two sermon texts pitted against one another. And doesn't there seem to be an obvious contradiction? The Psalms teach one thing and the Sermon on the Mount teaches another. And David has done what Jesus later forbids. So how am I to know whether hatred can ever be justified? Now that's a really difficult question and there's not a simple or straightforward answer. So when it comes to the question of hatred, I would like to apply it to three, to three areas in this sermon. Firstly, hating sin. Secondly, hating sinners. And thirdly, hating Christians. And so here are the three points to my sermon this morning. Hating sin, hating sinners, and hating Christians. 
So firstly, we have hatred of sin. And how does God feel about sin? Well, obviously, he hates it. He despises it. He loathes sin. And we read that again and again in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New. He loves righteousness, but he hates lawlessness. And he also hates idolatry. And he hates religion that is insincere. In chapter 1 of Isaiah, he tells the people that he hates their new moon festivals uh, and their appointed feasts. He hates the acts of worship of these people. What a terrible possibility. You're at a worship service and God hates it because what you're doing is hypocritical and insincere. What an awful possibility. And if God hates sin, then we must do the same. In Proverbs it says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And surely it's a sign of repentance when a person hates his own sin. Once you love God, you will hate sinning. If you say you love God and at the same time love sinning, then your love of God is really quite meaningless. A Christian is a person who hates sin, not just in other people, but especially in himself, in herself. And so the question is, do I hate sin? Do you hate those sins that some people find pleasant and perhaps at one time you used to enjoy yourself? used to secretly check porn sites on the internet. But now you hate the very thought of it. The movies you watched on TV and in the cinema were of doubtful moral quality, but you enjoyed them anyway. Now you steer clear of them altogether. Before, you didn't hesitate to speak ill of others if it suited your purpose. But now if you catch yourself doing it, you confess that sin right away. You used to envy others who had everything going for them and who seemed to be living the dream that you thought you were entitled to. But now... When you detect jealousy or envy in yourself, that's something you hate. Or used to enjoy bragging about your own achievements, sometimes over coffee after church. But now, you when you discover that you are big noting yourself, you hate that in you. And again, it's a sin that you confess and want to do away with. And not only do you hate sin in yourself, but you also hate sin in other people as well. If you see your children sinning, you'll discipline them appropriately. If you see sin or injustice in society, you will use your democratic rights and contact your politician. If you see crime, you'll tell the police. And if you see injustice overseas, you'll support Amnesty International or the International Justice Mission to expose that sin for what it is. You see, if you love God, you will hate sin 
You cannot serve two masters. You will hate sin in yourself and you will hate it in others. As the psalmist said, I hate and despise all falsehood, but I love your law. But if we are to hate sin, then surely it's only a small step to also hating the sinner. But is this a step that we may take? As believers, are we ever allowed to hate sinners? Well, as we answer those questions, let's first look at the Old Testament and then at the New. And as you read the Old Testament, then hatred for sinners would seem to be more than justified. Now, at the moment, I'm doing my personal devotions in the Psalms. And that's a part of Scripture that has such a wealth of comfort and encouragement and teaching about the goodness of God. For many people, understandably, it's their favourite book of the Bible. And so much so that, and so, and so that the Psalms are absolutely beautiful. So much is, is delightful to read. And yet sometimes you can be reading a beautiful psalm, perhaps even at a sickbed, and unless you're careful, you might stumble across something that sounds really ugly and hateful. In Psalm 69, David does pray for his enemies, but how? May their table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see. And may their limbs shake continually. And in Psalm 137, there are verses which just seem to be seething with hatred. They were written during the captivity in Babylon. And they read like this. O daughter of Babylon, you devastator. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. In other words, blessed is the one who bashes your baby's brains out. Now, what a beatitude. Is that the kind of language that we should still be using today? Can we feel this way? Can we pray this way? Well, some of these psalms, of course, have found their way into our hymn books, like, say, the Book of Worship. And yet it's interesting to see how much these psalms have been toned down for singing. And the words I read about Babylon are rendered quite differently, for example, in the old Psalter hymnal that some of you may still remember. It says this, Remember, Lord, the dreadful day of Zion's cruel overthrow. How happy he who shall repay the bitter hatred of her foe. I notice that nothing is said about dashing babies against rocks. In the Psalter hymnal, these so-called offensive psalms have been softened down considerably. Somehow the hymn writers didn't think it appropriate that Christians should go around singing this sort of thing. Now, were the hymn writers correct in making it all sound nicer and less offensive? Or do we still have the right to make David's words in our text our own? Do I not hate them that hate thee, O Lord? 
And do I not loathe them that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Are we ever allowed to feel this way? Am I ever to echo these words? Well, the Reverend John Stott, a well-known English Bible scholar and teacher and preacher, uh, he made these very interesting comments. He said this, I myself would find it hard to echo these sentiments. The reason for this is not, however, that they are beneath me, but that they are beyond me. I cannot attain to desires for divine judgment without vindictiveness, nor to assertions of my own righteousness without pride. Possibly, therefore, our sense of offence at these words arises not so much from Christian sensitivity as from our general inexperience of persecution. Now, C.S. Lewis once gave a good illustration of this. As an academic and as a writer, he didn't often go to the football. But one time, a friend did take him. And at first he was amazed at all the yelling and the screaming and the carrying on. He looked down on that noisy crowd. But then he saw what Stott saw. The emotions of the crowd were not beneath him, they were beyond him. And I must confess, and this may surprise some people, uh, that I have a similar experience when I go to the footy. What do I do? Do I sit there like a bump on a log or do I act all excited? Well, if I, if I get all excited, I'm likely to get a poke in the ribs and hear my wife saying, stop pretending. And so I sit there thinking, why is everyone around me so emotional and I'm not? And then it occurs to me, they know all the rules of the game. I don't. They know every player by name. I don't. They attend a game every week. I'm lucky if I go every five years. They will sit there in the rain and in the cold. I'd rather watch the game on television. They are fully paid up members of the Geelong Football Club, and I'm not. And so when the crowd around me gets all excited and I don't, I have to confess that their emotions are not beneath me. <coughs> they are beyond me. I am not as committed as they are. But now, is that the way that we are to look at these Psalms? Are the psalmists more committed to God than we are? Just like those die-hard footy fans are far more dedicated to the cats than I am. Are John Stott and C.S. Lewis right? If we were persecuted more, would we echo these psalms more? Should we strive for some kind of holy hatred should we try and capture the feelings of the psalmists, or should we do something else? Well, according to Jesus, we should do something quite different. Love your enemies. 
and pray for those who persecute you. Now that's radical. It's like getting a Cats fan to cheer for the other team. You see, holy hatred was all right for the Old Testament, but not for the new. The perfect hatred of which, of which David speaks was okay for him, but it's not okay for us. But why not? Why the change? Well, when we answer questions like this, we need to be sensitive to the flow of Bible history. What applies in one period of Bible history may not apply in another. What applies to King David may not apply to the disciples of Jesus. If we don't remember the historical setting, we can end up doing the strangest things. Now, from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus, the kingdom of God and the state of Israel were one and the same. If you are against Israel, you are against God. If you're an enemy of Israel, you're an enemy of God. If you're an enemy of the King of Israel, you're an enemy of God. But when Jesus came, all of this changed. My kingdom is not of this world, he said. The kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom was now not to be extended by the sword, but by the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The kingdom was no longer a political state, but an international body of believers around the world. And the enemies of the kingdom are not other nations or even other people, but the principalities and the powers of darkness. So in the Old Testament, an Israelite could hate the Egyptians or the Philistines or the Babylonians or whoever, because they were also the enemies of God. But in the New Testament, Christians are not to hate their enemies because their enemies may not necessarily be the enemies of God. They may yet become the children of God. Think of Paul himself, who was first Saul the persecutor, the arch enemy, it would seem, of the church. And yet later he became a fervent disciple and missionary. A few years ago, I was speaking to a fine Christian young man, an Irishman, in fact, a Protestant from Dublin. And he had just finished reading Fox's book of Christian Martyrs. It's about the terrible suffering and persecution endured by Christians up until the 17th century. And after reading this book, the man said, from this I've learned to really hate the devil. You know, not the Romans, not the barbarians, not the pagans, not the Muslims, but the devil. You see, we may and indeed we must hate Satan and all his spiritual hosts. But our fellow human beings are there to love and pray for. King David lived at another time of salvation history. Our model is not his holy hatred but Christ's perfect love. So forget some of the other things I said about footy and so on. And forget all about that. So long as you remember this main point of the sermon, that our model is not David's holy hatred, but Christ's perfect love.
You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Moreover, we have seen what David never saw and what he may never even have imagined. We remember Jesus hanging on the cross and praying for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He practised what he preached. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He is our model. He is our inspiration. And his cross is our moral compass. Compared to King David, we live on the other side of the hill of Calvary. And I think it's harder to be a believer on this side of that hill. The holy hatred of David has given way to the perfect love of Christ. Some years ago, a Ugandan Christian could write a book called I Love Idi Amin, a dictator who had lots of blood on his hands. Richard Wormbrand, a Christian pastor in Romania, still managed to love his communist torturers. God's love conquered their hate, and they too became Christians. In a concentration camp in Germany during World War II, Corriton Boom watched her frail sister being mocked and beaten. She felt a murderous hatred arise within her. She picked up a shovel and she rushed for a female guard. And before anyone noticed, her sister stepped out in front of her and she said, Corrie, Corrie, keep working. And don't look at the whip mark, Corrie. Don't look at it. Look only at Jesus. Christ loved his enemies and we must do the same. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do you? Do you pray for that person at work who gives you hell? And do you love her? Or you may have a non-Christian boss who's arrogant and unkind and unfair. Do you love him and pray for him? Or, you, or there may be a neighbour who is very unfriendly and whenever you do the slightest thing wrong and lets the council know. Do you love him? Do you pray for him? And during World War II, I wonder how many Christians prayed for the salvation of Adolf Hitler and his Nazi colleagues. At the height of the Cold War, the American evangelist Billy Graham was asked by a news reporter, what do you, how do you feel about the Soviet leaders? And he said, I pray for them every day. You see, in the Christian's heart, there is to be no room for hatred. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, if you are to love your enemies, what is to happen then? And here's my third point. What is to happen when it comes to your fellow Christians? In such cases, you would expect hatred to be almost unimaginable. And it's exactly the way the Bible pictures it. In the first letter of John, he speaks four times about hating your brother or your fellow Christian. 
And I'd like to read all four of those verses without comment, and I'm sure you'll find the message is unmistakably clear. In chapter 2, John writes, The one who says he is in the light, yet hates his brother, is in the darkness until now. And then a couple of verses later on, he writes, The one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And then in chapter 3, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And then finally in chapter 4, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, let's just summarise all of this for a moment. If you hate your brother, that is, if you, if you hate another Christian, whoever that may be, then according to these verses, this is what's true of you. You're in the darkness. The darkness has blinded your eyes. You're a murderer. You do not have eternal life. You are a liar and you do not love God. In other words, if you hate your brother, then at that point in time, you have no right to believe that you're a Christian. Whatever the reason for your hatred may be, you have no right to believe that you are a Christian if you hate another brother or sister in Christ. You have no right to believe that you are on your way to heaven. Surely the Bible could not have put it in stronger language. Hatred between his own people, hatred with within his own family, is something that the Lord simply won't stand for. But what if hatred has you in its grip? What if it just wells up within your heart and there doesn't seem to be anything that you can do about it? What then? Do you just give up? Well, let me answer that with an example from real life. It's another of Corrie ten Boom's experiences in her book, The Hiding Place. The war was over and Corrie had a lot of speaking engagements in Holland, in other parts of Europe, and even in the United States. But the greatest need, of course, was in Germany itself. And that's where this significant little incident took place. I'll read part of the story for you. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing centre at Ravensbrück, which was the concentration camp. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying. He was beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, he said. To think that, as you say, he washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to people about the need to forgive, I kept my hand at my side even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. 
Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on Christ's. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. It has been said, the best way to get rid of an enemy is to make a friend out of him. With Christ's power, it is possible, and it has been done many times. Let us pray. Our dear God, we thank you for these challenging words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Oh Lord, we pray that in a world that seems to have more and more hatred across all kinds of groups of people, we pray, Lord, that we as your people may not only love one another, but that as such we may be the light of the world and a city set upon a hill. Lord, we pray that the light of your love may shine through us every day. In Jesus' name. Amen. In closing, I'd like to read from 1 Thessalonians 5, some of the closing verses. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who has called you is faithful and he will surely do it. Amen.